Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. On this episode of Most Notorious, perhaps the greatest American imposter you've never heard of, the woman best known as Cassie Chadwick. So, uh, Carnegie was certainly an audacious choice. If you're going to conduct a con, you got to give Cassie Chadwick credit for aiming high because it was either going to be Andrew Carnegie or it was going to be John D. Rockefeller. Welcome all to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Reminis. Thank you for staying subscribed, and thank you for all of the amazing Apple Podcast reviews you've left me. I appreciate it tremendously. Well, it's so great to have as my guest today, Thomas Crowell. He is an avocational historian who has published two previous books, including Murder of a Journalist. His articles have appeared in Timeline, Echoes, History Magazine, and the Central States Archaeological Journal. He's also a retired veterinarian. And he is here to talk about his book, Queen of the Khan, From a Spiritualist to the Carnegie Imposter. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, Eric. It's a pleasure to be here. Ah, a pleasure to have you. So where did you first hear about Cassie Chadwick, and what did you learn about her that convinced you that she would be a great subject for her own book? Well, I'm always on the lookout for a good story, and I don't even remember what I was researching at the time, but her name came up peripherally to that research, and I made a note of it. I went back later and did a little bit of research to find out who she was and what she did. I mean, real simple stuff like what you get on Wikipedia and that sort of thing. And then I found that uh, it was an extremely interesting story and that eventually I discovered that no one had previously published a nonfiction account of her life. There's a couple or three historical fiction type novels using her as a basis, but nobody had actually looked at the nonfiction. And in truth, uh, nonfiction is uh, oftentimes more interesting than fiction. So I went and uh, did all that research, found that there was a, a need there, or at least an, it was an interesting story that ought to be told. And so I just went from there. Ah, that, that's great, yeah. So, Cassie Chadwick, the central figure in your book, was born Elizabeth Bigley 
in Canada, correct? Yes, yes, that's right. Uh, what was her life like there? What was her family background? Well, she doesn't have, uh, it, that's a little thin, I guess, would be the best way to put it. And one thing you have to learn about uh, swindlers and career criminals is they don't go out of their way to keep detailed records of what they do in, in the past sometimes. But um, she was the daughter of a railroad section hand. He was either a section hand or a section chief or father on uh, one of the railways that went through Canada and into the United States. And he was gone during the week working on the rail sections, building the railroad. And uh, she had like, uh, I forget how many now, seven or eight siblings. Um, She was in the middle of the family. Uh, They grew up on a small farm in, uh, in Ontario, about 100 miles east of Detroit. Let me give you an approximation of the area. And she had a, she was most notable as a youngster for having a vivid imagination and having, occasionally having these strange sort of fits or trances that she went into, which they attributed to her having a high fever from some disease as a child. And I think that uh, there's not much doubt she was pretty eager to get out of that life and uh, get into something a little more grand. Yeah, for sure. So what is the first documented illegal thing that she did? Well, she seemed to start that pretty young. I mean, 14, 16, she was... uh, forging various promissory notes. She was trying to buy merchandise on credit, um, all of those kinds of things at a fairly young age. And generally she got, as a lot of teenagers do, you know, they get into different scrapes from time to time. But she uh, she was a little bit above that even. But she pretty much always got a pass from the legal authorities because she was a woman, a girl, and because of her age. So they really didn't press things, but she she was pretty good at it. And then she did finally get herself arrested around the time she was 21 for passing Ford's promissory notes at a nearby nearby city from near where she lived in, in Canada. And that was her first brush with the law that really amounted to anything. She was actually tried but she was acquitted on a sort of, uh, she pretended to be insane, and the judge took, uh, you might say, took pity on her. He actually instructed the jury to, uh, to just let her go. Took them two hours to decide to do that, though, but then they did, she was acquitted, which was uh, probably a gift. And it probably helped to launch her career because she found out that she could manipulate the legal system as well as she could manipulate a lot of other things. Right. What was it about her that would give her the ability to pull off so many cons in her lifetime, many of which we will be talking about momentarily? But what was it about the way she carried herself, presented herself, 
that allowed her to be such a successful swindler? Well, I would have loved to have met her, to be honest, <laughs> to tell you the truth. But from what I can tell, she was extremely persuasive and a very good actress in terms that she was able to uh, convince people of all sorts of things, be extremely convincing. Um, she could talk about a large number of topics, a good conversationalist, all of that sort of thing. And she was just able to convince people of things that you wouldn't think people could be convinced of. Yeah. You, you mentioned something in your book. I don't know if you coined it the, the Chadwick method or somebody else did, <laughs> but basically her MO was to plead and persuade when she wanted something. But then once she got it, she would treat the victim with complete disdain. Yes, that's true. She, uh, once she knew she had someone, usually a banker or somebody with money or some, something, why, boy, once she had them and once she had the hooks into them, why, then she really didn't have a whole lot of respect for them and pretty much just had them wrapped around her little finger, so to, so to speak. Um, some people said that she had sort of a hypnotic personality, although I don't really. And this, this was a time in American history when hypnosis and mesmerism and spiritualism was at its peak, and people wanted to believe things like that. I don't particularly believe anything like that. I think she was just very persuasive. But a lot of people claim that, that she had a hypnotic effect on people, and that's part of how she got her way. But I think that was more a question of what they were willing to believe at the time rather than being any kind of truth. What time period is this? Well, she was probably, she was born roughly 1857. So if she was 21, that would be uh, about 78. So from about 1880 uh, until 1905, when, when she was the most active, spiritualism in America got started before the Civil War and extended till after the turn of the century. But that last half of the 19th century was probably when it was at its peak uh, following the Civil War and so forth. So how did she end up in the United States? <laughs> well, after she got into trouble and had that trial in Canada where she was acquitted, they shipped her off to Cleveland, her family did, to where she had a sister, and she moved in with her older sister. And she wasn't with her older sister very long before she started mortgaging the older sister's furniture to get money. And uh, without the older sister's knowledge or the husband's knowledge, and you couldn't change her. She, she was what she was, and she was well on the path to being a career criminal, and she had learned that it was uh, easier to take the criminal path to make money than it was to actually make an effort at it for a woman uh, 
in her time period, which was a time when there weren't many options open to women. And uh, I guess crime was sort of one of them. And so she was in Cleveland, and uh, she, her, eventually her brother-in-law, her brother, yes, her brother-in-law threw her out of the house because of what she had done. She started running things up on his accounts at various merchants. He had to tell the merchants that she, he would no longer be responsible for her debts. And uh, that was sort of the beginning of the career, beginning of her career as a career criminal. I mean, she, from there on out, she, I don't think she ever worked a day in her life. So how did she get the idea to become a clairvoyant? And what did she do as a clairvoyant to make money? Well, a clairvoyant is a fancy term for a fortune teller, I guess. And there was a time period there when she had left home in her late teens and very, very like around 20 years old. She had left home uh, at that point, not real clear what she did, but she appeared to have spent a lot of time riding the rails and uh, working in uh, sort of a something in the sex trade, I guess you could say, they said. Um, I personally don't really think she was a straight streetwalker kind of prostitute, but on the other hand, um, I don't think she was above using that sort of thing to uh, achieve other goals. She uh, was particularly good at uh, blackmail, and uh, she learned a lot about blackmail. And while she was on this educational spree, I guess you could say, I think she ran into a lot of career criminals who gave her a certain amount of advice, and she was a fast learner, people she learned from. And at that time, being a clairvoyant, being a fortune teller, being a spiritualist was kind of something that was on the borderline between legal and illegal and so forth, although it wasn't illegal to be a, a clairvoyant. Did she have any, any real training? No, not really. She didn't have any training necessarily except on how to do it as a con. Uh, most of what she did was spiritualist, and when she arrived in Toledo and advertised herself as Madame Devere, Madame Lydia Devere, who served as a spiritualist and a clairvoyant, and she claimed to be a European of European extraction and all the rest of it. Why, much of what she did was uh, she had some very, very wild parties that she held at her home for her uh, some of her clients. Many of her clients were were men, almost all of her clients were men, and many of them uh, young men, and she had wild parties for them. She always had a very attractive, very available young woman from Cleveland or somewhere there to help her out, and uh, she kind of skated along doing that. Uh, along the way, she picked up important information, business information that could be useful in other words, uh, today we might consider it something like insider stock trading and that kind of thing. She'd pick up inside information about things. Um, she would sometimes uh, she would come into possession of some of the important papers from these people. Uh, there was one case where she got some important papers from a New Yorker, 
And in order to get them back, he had to pay her. Actually, it was paid her blackmail. And uh, she told him that uh, he should remember that uh, if the papers became public, it wouldn't hurt her, but it would ruin him. And so she did these kinds of things and uh, threw in a little bit of forgery and so forth. So she was, she was a versatile con artist of the early 18, uh, 1880s into the, into, 18, into the 1880s. But I don't think there was an exact school you went to. I think you learned most of that, just uh, picked it up on your own, so to speak. Sure, sure. So while she was in Cleveland, she married a doctor, right? Yes, Dr. Springsteen, yes. She married a doctor, persuaded him. He was 40 and she was half his age anyway. And um, she tended to be a hypochondriac, so she had lots of experience with doctors. Plus, she found that being married to a doctor gave her a certain level of respectability that she couldn't get anywhere else. And people at the time tended to view doctors as they do today as being somewhat better off financially than the average person. So she somehow managed to meet the doctor and convinced him uh, to marry her. And it turned out that when she got married, well, just before she got married, uh, she had mortgaged Apparently, it was a quite a common con in those days to, and I should back up and say that mortgaging one's furniture and personal goods and so forth at that time was a common way for lower classes to raise money because there was no social safety net. So if you were in a situation where you needed some cash, you could mortgage your furniture uh, if you're out of a job or whatever, you could mortgage your furniture. Well, con artists developed the uh, technique of mortgaging the furniture in one house multiple times through different lenders. And she got into this scheme pretty well. And she had mortgaged and taken uh, loans out from a, a money lender. Uh, I guess you might call them loan sharks today, perhaps a little bit, but a money lender that in those days they were a little bit less viewed a little bit less uh, negatively so she took these loans out and it turned out she didn't pay them and the money lender found out she was marrying springsteen and she went he went and demanded his money and um, a half hour before the marriage ceremony she signed a new mortgage with him which signed over all of the goods that she had, plus uh, all of her wedding gifts, uh, her wedding dress, her wedding ring, all the things, the grooming. She signed all this over to the moneylender to make him go away. And when he came the next, he got nervous about this and decided he was going to go the next day and get it. So he went the next day and got them. And that's about the time that the doctor found out that she wasn't what she had said she was. And I think she was only with him for a couple of weeks before he threw her out of the house. And so you might imagine it was not a very happy circumstance for the doctor. <laughs> no, no, not at all. So it wasn't that long after that she married a second time, right? Whom did she marry and how did that relationship go? 
Well, that's a good question that I don't have the answer to because there there was the story that she married a farmer from the uh, Youngstown, Ohio area, which is not far from Cleveland. But she married a farmer from there, and somehow she convinced him to uh, sign some kind of an agreement that said if they ever divorced or whatever, that she would get all of his property. This is a fairly common story associated with her, but I was never able to verify it. And I'm not completely convinced that it, it, it didn't really fit her profile for her to go out and marry a farmer like that. I can certainly see her trying to con him out of his farm, but it just it didn't fit well. So whether that marriage actually took place or not, I really, uh, I really don't know. And whether there were other marriages that I, I don't, if I couldn't really be certain or relatively certain, um, I did not put it down as being a fact. We'll be back after these brief messages. Hey all, it's Eric. So eating better is easy with Factors Scrumptious Ready-to-Eat Meals. Don't feel like prepping, cooking, or cleaning and tired of takeout? Every Factor meal is fresh, never frozen, chef-crafted, and ready to go in just two minutes. There are 35 different options to choose from each week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor is really flexible for busy schedules, too. Get as much or as little as you need each week, pause or reschedule deliveries anytime. There are breakfast and midday bite options, too pancakes, smoothies, and more. And of course, made with premium ingredients. And Factor has done the math. It's less expensive than takeout, and each meal dietitian approved to be nutritious. The other day, I downed the salsa shredded chicken thighs with sweet potatoes and Southwest veggie medley. The perfect amount of spice, I thought, and really, really delicious. So head to factormeals.com notorious50 and use code NOTORIOUS50 to get 50% off. That's code NOTORIOUS50 at factormeals.com NOTORIOUS50 to get 50% off. I highly recommend Factor and really hope you enjoy it as much as I do. Cheers. Hello all, Eric here. So you can't fully understand the moment we're living in without knowing where we've been. On every episode of NPR's Throughline, the hosts take a story from the news and go back in time to where it started to answer one important question. How did we get here? If you are interested in the stories behind today's news stories or learning how the past informs the present, you're going to love the Throughline podcast from NPR. I've listened to and enjoyed many episodes of Throughline over the years and learned about a number of historical figures that I had never heard about before, and I've gotten insights into well-known historical events. Throughline approaches these figures and events from really interesting new angles, often telling a completely different story than the one that's typically told. Here's an example, an episode I particularly enjoyed. It's called The Lord of Misrule, and it's about a man named Thomas Morton, an early New England colonist who butted heads with William Bradford, governor of the Plymouth Colony, 
and Morton would end up publishing a book critical of the Puritans, a book that is considered to be the first book ever banned in American history. So, let Throughline take you back in time to the source of the stories filling your feed. Listen now to Throughline from NPR wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And we have returned. How many aliases did she have that you had to keep track of? Oh, that's, well, you really only have to keep track of the main. I mean, Betsy Bigley was her main name, and Madame Devere was the one which which she used in Toledo, and she was uh, involved in forgery and passing forged promissory notes there in order to borrow money from banks. She had an. He wasn't really an accomplice. Actually, she was blackmailing him, and so he did her bidding. And uh, named uh, a fellow named Joseph Lamb, who was probably also twice her age. She used that name. Uh, she eventually was uh, convicted, tried, and sent to the Ohio Penitentiary. And then when she came back out, she used the name Lydia Hoover for a while. And then she met uh, Dr. Leroy Chadwick about the mid-1890s after she was out of prison. And that's, uh, she married him, so that's how she became Chadwick, um, she started out being Lydia Hoover, then she changed it to Cassie Hoover. Actually, the postal service, the post office, she used to go to the post office and try to collect mail under all these aliases. And the postal clerks told her she had to pick one because they wouldn't give her all the mail under all the aliases. (laughs) she She ignored them at first. And so they started sending all of her mail to the dead letter room, I guess, as it was in those days. And then she got the message and finally said, okay, we'll go with Cassie Hoover. So she became Cassie Hoover. And changing your name in those days, I mean, it wasn't like you had to go to court or anything. All you had to do was say, hi, I'm so-and-so, and that's it. And if tomorrow you want to be somebody else, you can do it. Yeah. <laughs> How did she meet Dr. Chadwick? Well, she was in – she owned – and. Uh, and again, we go back a little bit. She had uh, apparently had an affair with a politician in Cleveland, uh, a ward healer type of uh, councilman sort of politician. And she had an illegitimate son by him named Emil. He was never publicly identified. Um, he, although a lot of people supposedly knew his name, it was never printed anywhere or anything like that. 
He's the one who helped pay for her lawyers for her during her Cleveland or during her Toledo trials. He paid for expensive Cleveland lawyer as well as the local talent. And when she got out of prison, I think he also set her up. And she had two years out of prison. She had uh, owned a number of row houses in Cleveland. Um, pretty good for an ex-con that got out of prison with no money. And she was running these row houses, and I think she was leasing out these row houses for all sorts of activities. And at one point, she called Dr. Chadwick. I should back up. So I guess Dr. Chadwick was visiting one of these to treat a patient. I'm not really clear what he was doing there. But anyway, he was there, and he ran into her, and... She put on her show about being this innocent, uh, just an innocent woman, and uh, she was uh, single, or widowed, would have been widowed, that she would have claimed, and all the rest of this. And then he pointed out to her that if she was respectable, what was she doing in a house that was of ill repute? And she immediately claimed that she didn't know and put on this big show and apparently convinced him. She went so, even went so far as to faint and immediately asked him to get her out of there and into a more proper lodging for a woman, of a respectable woman, which he did. And it didn't take her long to get her hooks into him. He was widowed at that time. He was taking care of uh, his aged mother. He had a, a daughter who was uh, preteen, I believe. Uh, his wife had passed away. He had a practice, although he wasn't, he was really not that great a doctor, even though he had gone to uh, Western Reserve University, which today is Case Western Reserve, which has a pretty good reputation. At that time, he, you know, he, he was just barely getting by on all of this. He had family money. The Chadwicks had originally come from Oil City, Pennsylvania, which was where they first drilled for oil. And his and Dr. Chadwick's father had owned a large stretch along Oil Creek and had had a good chunk of oil money. He left Western Pennsylvania, went to Cleveland to build a nice house on Euclid Avenue before Euclid Avenue was anything. And uh, anyway, his, he, he, was, he was deceased. And his son, the doctor, Leroy Chadwick, was not really too smart. Actually, especially when it came to business, he, was, he had no smarts. And he had pretty much run all this into the ground. Cassie Chadwick comes along. Cassie Hoover comes along and tells him how she can, what she can do. And she did know something about real estate because she had all of these row houses and stuff. And so he turned it all over to her to run. And she at least put some order into that and into the household and uh, persuaded him to marry her. And so she was like two years, three years out of prison and she's back in business, married to a doctor with a house on Cleveland's million, Millionaire's Row, which was Euclid Avenue. She must have been quite persuasive. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and, and full of confidence too, right? Well, I guess that's part of it, right? They call it a confidence game. So I guess she had no shortage of being no shortage of being audacious uh, and convincing. And he certainly uh, 
bit into it hook, line, and sinker. And uh, eventually, they they got married fairly quickly. Uh, but um, you know, that was quite a remarkable rise from being released from prison and being on parole. She didn't. She wasn't. Didn't serve. Actually, she was paroled from prison in Columbus, the Ohio Penitentiary, by none other than Governor William McKinley, who was, of course, later President William McKinley. Yeah. So um, she had a way of uh, meeting up with. Uh, uh, I mean, she even convinced him, and, and they said that he that she convinced him that convinced prison authorities and so forth that she was uh, she was uh, dying of tuberculosis or something. And so the humane thing to do would be to release her. And I'm sure that political contacts that she had in Cleveland, because as you may or may not know, um, or recall, I'm sure you know, but you recall that uh, McKinley's uh, campaign manager was Mark Hanna from Cleveland. And, uh, you know, and Cassie was kind of plugged into the political system a little bit there with this fellow she'd had the affair with. And so she had contacts and she knew people and she had resources there, which are almost impossible to uncover in resource in, in research. But uh, clearly she had some help along the way. Right. So you used the word audacious. And off the top of my head, I, I can't think of anything more audacious than the con she pulled involving Andrew Carnegie. It's got to be one of the great cons of the Gilded Age. Well, I would go so far as to say it was one of the greater, greatest cons of American history. Um, yes, yes. Uh, you know. I'd love it if you could talk about that. Sure, uh, sure. But maybe even before we go there, could you tell us a bit about Carnegie, his life, his level of fame at the time this all went down? Well, Andrew Carnegie was, of course, one of the premier robber barons, I guess you could say, of uh, American history during the Gilded Age, during the 19th, uh, last part of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century. And he managed to change his reputation from being a robber baron to being a philanthropist, being widely respected in everything. He was a steel man, of course, an iron manufacturer, uh, created a huge steel company, Carnegie Steel in Pittsburgh, uh, employed thousands of people, built steel, huge steel manufacturing facilities. Um, and back at that time when America was being built, wise, they needed steel for bridges, they needed steel for buildings, they needed steel for railroads, they needed steel for everything. And Carnegie got his start uh, around the time of the Civil War and just continued to push ahead with it. And he had probably one of the, if not the largest, steel company in the United States in the 1890s. And then if you recall American history, why there was, uh, in eight, I think it was 1892, that they had the disastrous homestead strike in uh, Pittsburgh, outside of Pittsburgh, when his workers went on strike. 
Now, at that point, in his, even at that point in his career, Carnegie was pretty much retired from day-to-day management. And they had the homestead strike, and there was bloodshed in that strike. Uh, the management sent in Pinkertons to break the strike, and the strikers and the Pinkertons shot it out. And as I recall, more Pinkertons died than strikers. But anyway, there was bloodshed, and it was a pretty ugly incident. Carnegie was in uh, Scotland at the time where he had a, a retreat and uh, managed to avoid having the worst part of it stick to his reputation, but still didn't help him any. So he went from being that in the early 1890s to by the time he got to the beginning of the t- uh, early part of the 20th century, he became a, a philanthropist who believed you should give away all your money and started giving it away to various causes and various things. And he made a remarkable transformation in his own persona and publicity. Um, he was a, obviously a brilliant man and a shrewd businessman. And so he had, in the beginning, I think it was about 1901, or so, he sold his steel company to, which was Carnegie Steel, to J.P. Morgan. J.P. Morgan actually approached Carnegie with the idea that he would pay whatever Carnegie asked, pretty much, because what he wanted to do was, first of all, he wanted to get rid of Carnegie out of the steel business, because Morgan and his cronies had figured out clever ways to manipulate stock and things like that, that they could make millions, tens of millions, without having to actually produce a whole lot by manipulating stock and so on. Carnegie didn't really go in for that, didn't believe in that. He was kind of a thorn in the side of uh, Morgan. So Morgan just simply said, you know, you want to sell? And he sent a representative to Carnegie. Carnegie talked to the representative and apparently wrote on an old scrap of paper with a pencil what he wanted for it, took it back to Morgan. Morgan said, that's, that's fine, we'll do it. So Carnegie sold his steel interest to Morgan. Morgan put them together and it became United States Steel, which was the first billion dollar corporation in the United States, massive corporation. Carnegie was a shrewd Scot, so he insisted that he be paid in first mortgage bonds. In other words, the bonds would get, if anything happened that the deal that Morgan ran the company into the ground or something, Carnegie would still get paid. He'd be the first in line to get paid. And he insisted that the bonds that he had could be paid or he could you could insist that those bonds be paid in gold so they were known as u.s steel gold bonds and that was how carnegie was paid and from there he retired and got out of that business and went into more philanthropic uh, things which of course involved libraries and all the things that he's known for and today i think we tend to view carnegie through the lens of his philanthropy but he had also had times when he had not been afraid to do things like manipulating stock, uh, reducing his workers' wages, uh, 
when things were down and all the things today that we would certainly frown on. That seems to have been something he managed to sweep under the carpet. So uh, in 1900, 1905, which is when Cassie Chadwick was really active with the Carnegie Con, why uh, Andrew Carnegie was seen as one of the two wealthiest men in the United States. The other one was uh, Rockefeller and John D. Rockefeller in the oil business, Carnegie was associated with steel business, and uh, he built a huge fancy mansion in D.C. Uh, and he was just seen as a sort of a wealthy, uh, wealthy rich uncle, I guess you could almost say at that point. And he had so much power. I mean, if he didn't want to testify before Congress, why he could just tell him no. Uh, if he said something, nobody ever questioned whether it was true or not true. Um, everybody knew that he settled his debts and he could certainly afford it. He kept something like, I forget now, but something like $10 million in cash in his holdings just in case something came along that he needed money for quickly. That was his pocket change. So uh, Carnegie was certainly an audacious choice. If you're going to conduct a con, you got to give Cassie Chadwick credit for aiming high because it was either going to be Andrew Carnegie or it was going to be John D. Rockefeller. John D. Rockefeller had lived in Cleveland. He had lived on Millionaire's Row on Euclid Avenue. He'd had a mansion on there before he moved to New York City. And I kind of think that she thought, well, there's too many people in Cleveland that knew John D. Rockefeller close, intimately, whereas Andrew Carnegie in Pittsburgh, less so. So I think that's why she picked Carnegie. So what was the con? What was the plan? How was she going to make money off of him? She created a few documents that, were, that had his forged signature on. And many of them were what were known as personal promissory notes. Now, we don't use personal promissory notes today hardly at all. Uh, you go in for a loan, you know, you have a form that you sign and so forth. But back in the 19th century, they were quite common and they were even traded. In other words, a man would pledge that uh, on a certain date, could be a few days or it could be a few years in the future, he would pay whatever the amount was in the note plus interest, so it might be $5,000 plus 5% interest, he would pay it to somebody. He would guarantee that he would pay it to somebody in the future. And how useful those notes are, of course, depended upon the credit worthiness or the supposed credit worthiness of the person who signed the note. Banks would oftentimes buy those notes and they'd pay less than face value, and then they would hold them until the uh, time came for them to be due, and then they'd present them to the person that had made. The problem, of course, with the whole thing was that it all depended on a person's credit worthiness, and there were no good credit reporting organizations in those days. You just couldn't pull up somebody's credit score. It didn't exist. So the, these were quite common, and they were used to finance a lot of things. But what she did was she created promissory notes that were signed 
by Andrew Carnegie, or supposedly so. There were at least two for $250,000, one or two for $500,000, and one for $5 million. And then there was also a trust agreement that she put together that indicated that she had almost or a little over $10 million in assets that Andrew Carnegie held in trust for her. At least half of those were U.S. steel gold bonds. And so she put all of these documents together and she had learned from her previous experience in Toledo, where she got arrested and sent to prison, that there was no way that she wanted to pass these. In other words, she didn't want to take these promissory notes to a bank and say, hey, how much will you give me for an Andrew Carnegie $250,000 promissory note? You know, She decided that she would use the notes not to pass them, not to try to get money from Carnegie or anything, but rather to use them and his name as collateral for loans. And that was the essence of the con, was that she used Carnegie's name. And sometimes if they didn't buy it it quickly, then she would produce one of these notes or something and it would have Carnegie's signature on it and they'd look, the bank would look at it or a money lender, a a financier, they're, they're much further up the money, the food chain than a money lender would look at it and say, well, yeah, okay, um, we'll loan you, uh, you know, $200,000 against the $250,000 note or whatever. And, and that was how she did it. That was how she managed to uh, get all the money that she did. Now, you might be asking yourself, why would somebody just take her word for it? Why wouldn't you, uh, if somebody walked in and, and uh, handed you a note that was signed by Andrew Carnegie and said, this is my collateral. Why would you not check that? You know, (laughs) that's the $64,000 question, but absolutely none of the people that she took advantage of, and even the ones who didn't fall for her con, nobody ever invested the three cents that a stamp cost to send a letter to Andrew Carnegie and say, hey, you know, is this really your promissory note or not. Nobody ever did that. Um, She would offer, if a banker would be going to lend her $200,000, she would offer him $25,000 to $50,000 personally as a commission for getting her the money. So she gave these huge bonuses and commissions to bankers and attorneys to find the money for her. And that, of course, more than more than made up for the risk, I guess. They, they thought that was worth the risk for that kind of a payout at the end of things. But um, it all would have worked, except that she couldn't manage to keep her spending under control. And every bit she got, she spent as fast as she got it. And that's probably more than anything else what caused her downfall. So the leverage she used when required to get these banks to give her money was based on a fictional relationship. She inferred to these bankers that she was Carnegie's illegitimate 
daughter. Yeah, that was, uh, if she could have picked any robber baron out there, be it Rockefeller or be it Morgan or be it Car- Carnegie, would have been the least likely to have an illegitimate child. <laughs> he was just really straight-laced. He didn't get married till he was like 50. Um, but somehow she she must have, you know, the, if you're going to, if there's anything, I would just have loved to have heard how she, her persuasiveness and how she could manage to convince people of stuff that, to, that you know, you just wouldn't think people would fall for. <laughs> but they didn't just fall for it. They gave her tons of money for it. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And because of the taboo nature of her claim, uh, bankers, while believing that these documents she produced were likely real, they were unwilling to go through with the final step of authenticating them. You don't want to broach a subject like this, um, the subject of illegitimacy, with a man of his wealth and status and power. Well, that's part of it. Yeah. Yes, definitely that was part of it. I also think that they didn't want to approach it from a bank standpoint because they stood to make so much money when she eventually her loan came due and she paid it. They assumed she was going to pay it. That they didn't want to blow it by contacting Carnegie and having him say, hell no, those aren't my those aren't my promissory notes. What's going on here? No, they didn't want that. They So rather than upset him and run the risk of having him disavow the notes or something, um, they just let the whole thing ride. Uh, fascinating. It is, yeah. Uh, also fascinating were the tricks that the Chadwicks used to stall bankers who were demanding debt be repaid. Uh, What were some of the tactics that they used to avoid these creditors coming after them? Well, she engaged in all kinds of different tricks. Um, I mean, you know, there's the usual excuses. Um, There's giving... uh, Bad, get, writing a check and having it be a bad check. Um, she took advantage of the float. Uh, in other words, she was kiting checks, which essentially, I mean, today, if you go to the bank and you deposit a large amount of money, uh, the bank will probably say, well, we're not going to give you any of that money. We're only going to give you a small amount of that money until we're sure that this is all going to go through and the check is going to clear and so forth. But in those days, you could, and she did this, you could open an account in Cleveland and uh, take yourself on a train to New York, write a check against that account that you opened in Cleveland, and maybe go back to Cleveland, take the money out of the first account, and the fact is that the checks wouldn't clear fast enough and they, you'd always be ahead of them. So you'd always end up getting money um, and be ahead of them from, from that standpoint. And she was, she was guilty of doing that. 
Um, there's one particularly interesting uh, story where she went to a tiny bank in a tiny little crossroads town in Ohio, northern Ohio, and she walked into the bank as she had a tendency to do and demanded to see, you know, either treasurer or the president or whatever. And she'd be ushered in. She'd be all dressed in fine clothes and jewelry and all that sort of thing. And she'd walk in there and she'd tell them, you know, make up some story. But anyway, she went to this tiny little bank and she told them that she wanted to borrow $25,000 or something like that. And uh, she didn't really have any collateral. She was just a wealthy woman and so forth. And banker said, no, I, I, we're not going to do that. She comes back two weeks later and puts a satchel down on his desk and it's got $25,000 in cash and says, I want to open an account. He opens it and they count the money, open an account. Slowly over the next few months, she draws the money out of that account a little bit, a little bit at a time till it's all gone. Then a wire comes to the bank that says that she has just put whatever the amount of, like another $25,000 to that bank's credit in a bank in New York. Well, the banker was cautious, so he sent a telegram to New York and said, is the money there? And yes, the, the money was there, actually. So she starts drawing that down. And finally, they get to the, and this is some months have gone by, she comes back in the bank and she says that there was a, there was another, I think it was $50,000 this time to the bank's credit in a bank in New York. And she wanted to draw out the 50000 The banker again says, well, we're going to have to check and see. And she got all upset and very indignant and so forth and carried on. He said, I'm still going to have to send a telegram. She said, okay. He sent the telegram, found out that there was no money there, that, it, that, that she had no money to the bank's credit. And in the interim, she had disappeared. She got back on the train and went back to Cleveland. Didn't wait to find out how it was going to come out. I guess the, the point to that story is the way she, and she didn't, wasn't just running one of these cons at a time. She was running multiple ones at a time. And so, you know, it's, this went on and they had, the bank had every reason to believe that the third amount of money would be there because the first two times she had had the money. Third time she didn't. She would have taken the money and the bank would have been out $50,000 or they would have had to deal with her that way to get their money back. But it just gives you insight into how clever and how far ahead she was thinking and how she was patient enough to take the time to draw it out over a long period of time and all that. It was. Uh, Remarkable. And then when you think about the fact that she didn't just have one of these things going on at a time, but she had multiple ones that she was juggling, it's clear that she was brilliant in terms of being able to put all this, keep all this straight, put all this together, keep it all straight, and then keep rolling them over. Because essentially she was building a Ponzi scheme where she was 
borrowing from Peter to pay Paul. And eventually it was going to collapse if she didn't stop doing it. She was never able to stop. But if she had been, I think she could have gotten away with the whole thing. Uh, And as the Cleveland Plain Dealer put it, if she'd been a corporation with proper management, she might have made a lot of people rich. And I'm inclined to agree with that. We will return after a brief moment. We are back again once more. Uh, how, how did it collapse? What was the specific incident that served as a catalyst for the collapse? Well, she got her, she got her hooks into a small bank in Oberlin, Ohio. Citizens National Bank, it was called. She had actually loaned money to Oberlin College. And I, you've no doubt heard of Oberlin College because it's, been, uh, it's an institution that had been around for a very long time, pre-Civil War, I believe. Um, it's a very liberal institution. Was at that time, too. It, 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 it offered education to women, to people of color, all the people who couldn't get in anywhere else. It allowed for people to work while they were going to college. It was part of their program. And they actually loaned money to Cassie Chadwick. Now, they had a very clever ruse that they used to make sure that nobody knew that she was borrowing money from them. Apparently, they didn't want people to know that. On the other hand, they wanted to collect some interest and make some money from their endowment. So they got involved with her. And along the way, she got, to, she got into this Citizens National Bank, which was a national bank, which gave it a little bit more, which meant it had a little bit stricter rules to follow than state banks. And you should keep in mind that at this, the Federal Reserve didn't come along to something like 1914. So there was no Federal Reserve. There was no deposit insurance. There was um, nobody auditing banks that had any real uh, power or anything. And a, and a lot of banks failed, obviously, during this time period, even without having a depression or a recession or a panic or whatever you want to call it. So she got into this bank. She told the president uh, that she was the uh, illegitimate daughter of, uh, well, actually, I think he said it took him a year to draw it out of her. Again, this shows you how she could play this so well. Um, He wanted to know where the money, where her money was coming from. But he started out loaning her small sums of money just like she was trying to do in that tiny other little tiny town in Ohio. He loaned her small sums, maybe $10,000 or so, and she paid it back promptly, and they went back and forth like this for quite a while. Um, He even went so far as to the president, whose name was Beckwith, even went so far as to loan her some of his personal money. And this just tended to snowball. There was also the case situation where she had She managed to get him and uh, one of his other officers to certify checks, which meant that it certified she had the money in the bank, even though she didn't have the money in the bank. They certified her checks, and she didn't pay those back. 
And then he got to loaning her more money, and she stopped paying it back. Now, this particular little bank, in the uh, context of the national banking rules that existed at that time, they couldn't loan to any one individual more than $6,000. She managed to get them to loan her $240,000, which was way above what they were permitted to loan to anybody. And in fact, it was about all the money there was in the bank. So they've, the bankers got nervous. They started wanting better collateral from her. So she started, so she produced some of her Carnegie uh, promissory notes. Well, here, I'll give you a $250,000 or $500,000 Carnegie promissory note as better collateral than what you currently have. And she kept, they kept rolling her loans over because she kept not paying them. And ultimately, she got into a lawsuit with a man who had loaned her money in Boston. That lawsuit became public. Um, there, there were creditors, especially in Cleveland and in New York, who found out that she was in this lawsuit, and they became concerned about collecting their money. And it turns out that some that a couple of collect uh, creditors to whom she owed less than like a thousand dollars forced her into involuntary bankruptcy, which you could do in those days. Creditors could force a debtor into this involuntary bankruptcy. And so she found herself facing involuntary bankruptcy. And the key thing about that was that the bankruptcy, they would produce a bankruptcy court and everything, and bankruptcy court would insist on a full accounting of everything and make sure that everybody had an equal chance to get at there. All the creditors had an equal chance to get at the assets and so on and so forth. This became public knowledge. It was printed in the newspapers uh, in Cleveland. I think that was in uh, November of like 1904. And didn't take long for the uh, news to get from Cleveland to Oberlin. And the people in Oberlin saw this and began to worry about the credit worthiness of this Citizens National Bank. The end result was that there was a classic bank run, which is where all the depositors run to the bank to try to take out their money at the same time. But the bank has no money, so they everybody gets screwed in the end, and the bank collapsed. And so they had to go, you know, the bank bank fell apart. All the a large number of people in Oberlin lost money. Um, the bank board was not told about these loans, and yet the board members and the stockholders were responsible for covering uh, all the share, all the uh, depositors' losses. It became a real, a real mess. But that was how she. That was her ultimate downfall. Um, this this whole thing resulted in uh, investigations by the federal prosecutor in Cleveland, and she was eventually charged with conspiracy to defraud a national bank. She was also, uh, her co-conspirators were the two bank officers in the 
Citizens National Bank who knew about it. And that was her downfall. From there, there was a trial. Unlike previous trials where she had been able to sort of manipulate things, uh, didn't happen this time, and she was convicted. And even though she was a federal prisoner, she was sent to the Ohio Penitentiary to serve her time, which was something on the order of nine or ten years that she was supposed to serve. She died in 1907, so she only was there for a couple. She only served like three years before she passed away. But that was that was her undoing, was uh, screwing over a national bank. Do you know what the cause of her death was? No, not really. Um, she was in prison. Uh, the stress of it and uh, the come down from the way she had been living. She was complaining. Of, she had issued various complaints. And as I said before, she was kind of a hypochondriac. At first, the prison uh, authorities did not take her seriously, but then she continued to deteriorate. Um, they put her in the hospital, Cleveland Hospital. They called her son, who was in Cleveland, uh, to come down. And uh, he visited her a time or two. But then finally, they the last call they made to him, he arrived like 10 minutes after she had died. There were you know causes like nervous collapse and that sort of thing. But there was no autopsy or anything of that sort to really nail it down. But she had lost a lot of weight. It could easily have been cancer or just about any disease you want to name, frankly. Um, they were really not too certain what had killed her. In fact, there were even people who weren't certain she was dead. <laughs> After she died, there was uh, some concern about that. Sure. Uh, her husband, Dr. Chadwick, was certainly complicit in her crimes. Was he punished at all for his involvement? Well, he lost everything, but he was never uh, faced trial. He was, for the most part, viewed as uh, just another one of the many people that she had taken advantage of. And uh, so he never, he never faced trial, never went to prison. How much he really knew and when he knew it was a, certainly a subject of debate. But most people gave him a pass and just said that she had essentially uh, presented herself as being someone she wasn't and had just simply hoodwinked him. And so he managed to escape that. He eventually ended up in Florida and uh, lived with his daughter in Florida, died in Florida. But uh, no, he managed to avoid. He managed to get the benefits for a long time, but uh, didn't have to pay for any. Of the, didn't have to pay the price in the end. How about Andrew Carnegie? At what point in her con did he learn that his name was being used, and what was his reaction? Well, when the whole business broke with the bank collapse and the run on the bank. That's when it became known that his name was involved, and that's when he found that's when he found out about it. Of course, he said, "Well, you know, I haven't written a promissory note for years, and these are all forgeries." And everybody pretty much believed him. Uh, they had they wanted him to come 
testify at her uh, at the grand jury for the grand jury and some other things when they were going to indict her. But it was the middle of the winter, and he said, oh, no, I really can't come now. And he got his doctor, which wasn't hard to do, to say that he, his, uh, his lumbago was acting up, so he couldn't come until spring. So he didn't, you know, he, eventually in, in the spring of the year, he couldn't avoid it any longer, so he went to Cleveland. And that was when he actually saw the documents uh, firsthand. And, uh, you know, he got a chuckle out of the whole thing. It, in fact, a reporter asked him, you know, about the whole issue and was he upset or anything. And he said, well, the woman just proved that my credit is still good. <laughs> <laughs> he just thought the whole thing was a big joke. At least that's how he presented it on the outside. Um, the neat thing about this story is that depending on what you choose to believe and how you choose to interpret things, you could look at this a whole lot of different ways. And that's what's clever about it and what made it a fun story to write is that, you know, did Andrew Carnegie have any relationship with Cassie Chadwick? Did he did he in any way, did she know him or him know her? And even Cassie's lawyer, her one lead lawyer, said he thought that she knew Carnegie. And, um, you know, was there, any, was there any kind of connection or anything there? And if you look at it, you know, you could say, well, there might have been a connection here or there might have been a connection there. Obviously, in, in an hour or so that we, we talk, you can't cover all of the details and all of the things that are in the book, but you could sit down and, and work out a whole lot of scenarios uh, based on what she did and uh, when she did it. And then, of course, the big question in the end was what happened to all the money? That's what the federal government wanted to know. Where'd the money go? Because they all swore up and down that they traced how much money she had actually borrowed, how much money she had actually raised, then they tried to put together how much money she had actually spent and then how much assets were left. And everybody was pretty convinced that she had siphoned off a fairly good amount of the money. And where did it go? Well, nobody knew except that there was her son floating around, this, this nerdy-looking kid in his early 20s, and uh, that nobody, everybody thought was just a nice kid. Nobody really thought he was anything else. but. Um, after she died, he disappeared. So where did he go? Did he leave with a satchel full of jewels or a satchel full of money or what was the deal? Anyway, uh, so the big question was, where was the money? Nobody ever answers that. Nobody's ever answered that. He was pretty darn smart too. You know, I, I have to say he was, I think, a lot shrewder than people gave him credit for. Um, even the jailers liked him because he was so devoted to his mother and everybody thought that was so wonderful how devoted he was to his mother. And he was the only one who was his, her regular visitor in prison and all the rest. But uh, I, I, I tend to think that, that in the end she took care of him. She swore that she always would and I think that she did. It, it's interesting. In the news now, we have a modern day con woman named Elizabeth Holmes. I mean, she's 
got to be one of the greatest female swindlers in modern times. She hoodwinked some very rich and powerful people for a lot of money. Well, that's the thing about trying these really top-class swindlers is that it's tough to get a conviction. She, in, in a lot of respects, Elizabeth Holmes, was actually found guilty of pretty much the same thing that Cassie Chadwick was, and that was conspiracy to commit some kind of fraud. And conspiracies are notoriously hard to get conviction. It's a charge that's notoriously hard for prosecutors to get a conviction on. And the other thing they threw in there was wire charges, which is a, a she was guilty of wire fraud, which is another thing that we've that prosecutors throw in there today. I don't know if you're familiar with Rita Crundwell, who was the uh, woman who, well, it's been 10 years now, uh, in Illinois, swindled uh, $50 million from the uh, city of Dixon, Illinois, Ronald Reagan's birthplace. Um, she went to prison pleading guilty to one count of wire fraud. So they, they managed to convict these people, but it's on the flimsiest of things sometimes. And in Elizabeth Holmes' case, I guess there were a number of charges they couldn't agree on a, on a verdict. So uh, um, it's, she, in a lot of respects, it's the more things change, the more they stay the same. Right, right. So as far as your book goes, it's available now, bookstores, online. Yes, yes, it is. Well, it's certainly available online, and um, it should be, as they say, in better bookstores everywhere. But um, bookstores, I don't understand. I don't, I don't know how they decide what they're going to carry and what they're not going to carry. So um, it's certainly available online. I think most people, a lot of people buy their books online today anyway. So Amazon, places like that, not a problem to find it. Well, well, this has been really interesting. Thank you so much for taking the time to share some of the details from your book. Well, I've enjoyed it, Eric. It's been a lot. It's been a lot of fun, and um, you know, the only way there's so much in the book and and so many details that you and I just can't really cover in an hour. That uh, I think it's a it, it is a very fascinating story about a woman who was definitely ahead of her time and who certainly didn't uh, fall into the gender roles of the, of the time, who went on and certainly was smart enough and clever enough and audacious enough that she could have been almost anything. It's almost too bad she chose to be a criminal. So as long as I have you here, would you yes. mind giving us a brief summary of your, your book, Murder of a Journalist? Murder of a Journalist is uh, about the murder of Don Millette in Canton in 1926. Millette was a newspaper editor. He was a crusading editor. You don't see newspapers do crusades anymore, but back in the day, they used to, especially when newspapers were predominant, they used to uh, crusade for certain causes that they believed in. And at the time, of course, it was prohibition. And so Millette's cause was prohibition. And it, was, it had this dual purpose of trying to alert public, the public to, to problems with prohibition and its enforcement. 
And if you were successful with the crusade, you'd get more people to read a news, your newspaper. And as a result, you'd end up selling more newspapers, so you'd make more money. So it kind of was a double-edged sword. But um, Millet uh, ruffled the wrong feathers in Canton, and he was murdered by uh, a corrupt Kabul, I guess you could say, of uh, local gangsters and local police. And uh, there were multiple trials. Nobody, th there were several people who were convicted of killing him, but the actual person who pulled the trigger is, we're not sure who that is. They never really established that. I think one of the people that went to prison was one of the people who killed him, but as far as actually being able to say definitively, this guy did it, no. Um, they they basically caught him at his home when he came home at like midnight and started shooting at him from a long distance. And these guys had all been drinking, so bullets were flying everywhere. But um, so he died. Uh, he was killed. And there were multiple trials. And it was a national outrage. There were reporters from all over the country that came to cover his came to cover the murder trials. Um, the chief of police in Canton was convicted, but then he was uh, got a new trial, and the second time he was acquitted. How much he knew and was involved in it, nobody knows for sure. Millette's newspaper, the Canton Daily News, um, won the Pulitzer Prize after his death for their reporting on prohibition and how it was and wasn't being enforced in Canton. Um, it's an interesting story about journalism in the 1920s and about prohibition in the 1920s. Uh, it's an interesting story. And at the time, Millette was truly uh, a well-known uh, media and journalistic uh, superstar after his death. There was a scholarship fund for him in New York City and a lecture fund that, for people. I mean, it, he was, uh, it was a big thing, but by the end of the 20th century, he was all but forgotten, a footnote in history. Uh, and those are the kind of stories I like to find and I like to flesh out because they're good stories and they're stories that can actually teach you something that have somewhat of a moral to them in some cases. And, uh, uh, in that case, uh, he ended up forgotten, much like Cassie Chadwick was forgotten. Well, thank you again. Thank you, Eric. It's been a pleasure, and uh, I certainly wish you every success with the podcast. Thank you. Again, I have been speaking to Thomas Crowell, author of Queen of the Con, From a Spiritualist to the Carnegie Imposter. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. Broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.